0: Welcome to What on Earth, an AI group podcast unpacking the key issues, the minerals, energy and supply chain sections of the transitioning economy.
1: Well, hello and welcome back to What on Earth, the podcast for business people wanting to understand what on earth is going on in the minerals, mining, energy, new energy and supply chains as our industry transitions to a post-carbon world. Every day, we hear of new developments in the transitioning economy, and as business people, it's so hard to keep up. So this podcast looks at the big issues facing our businesses and it seeks to find clarity in the chaos. Fundamentally, this podcast looks at what is happening under the earth, above the earth, and around the world, and addresses the question, what on earth do I need to do and think and plan in order to future-proof my business? I'm James Scotland, the General Manager of Minerals Energy and Supply Chain for the Australian Industry Group. And joining me each episode is the Senior Policy Advisor for AI Group for Energy and Environment, the knowledgeable and engaging Tenet Reed. Hello, Tenet. Hello, James. I am going to try to live up to that. <laughs> it's a big intro today. Speaking of which... Our third co-host is the informed and insightful Paul Hodson, an experienced industry and business commentator with a special interest in innovation and change. Hello again, Paul. It's good to have you here. Thanks, James. Great to be back. Hey, guys, we've been getting lots of good feedback since uh, we've launched the podcast, uh, and uh, I really appreciate all the feedback that we're getting. Uh, Tenet, last time we talked about your... Uh, Recently released report on um, (laughs) KBAM, KABAM, the uh, the carbon border abatement mechanism, and the main question we've been getting is how's it going? Has the report been received well? Um, What's happened?
0: so i've uh, i've had uh, uh, quite a lot of positive feedback about that report and most uh, most directly uh, i'm now uh, working with a number of international business organisations to uh, try and uh, draft uh, some common positions or at least a uh, common understanding Uh, of uh, carbon border adjustment mechanisms among them. Uh, And I've been asked to give a presentation on that report uh, in the Turkish Pavilion at COP26, which we're going to talk about a bit more today. So I won't be able to be there in person, but uh, I am looking forward to my digital participation at, I think, 2 a.m. Melbourne time uh, in, uh, in a panel on how Turkey and other economies will be affected by what Europe is uh, proposing to do around these so-called carbon tariffs.
1: Wow. That's, that sounds like a big deal. Well done. Of course, the Turkish pavilion sounds like a delight to me, some sort of uh, suite that I could possibly have, but uh, that's probably just the way my mind thinks. Well, Australia is going to have a pavilion at,
0: uh, at this COP uh, for the, the first time in a while, uh, I think. Uh, but it's it's falling in a year when there's not going to be a lot of Australians in evidence, at least uh, not more than, than a handful uh, working for the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade because it's pretty hard to get to uh, COP26, uh, uh, pretty hard to get back from COP26, more to the point, uh, if you live in Australia uh, or New Zealand or, or Japan or a number of other countries.
1: Yeah, I think we'll we'll talk about COP 26 for the rest of this episode, uh, and there's a lot of issues, including the fact that it can't be as much in person, um, face to face meetings as you probably need to get things done but let's let's circle back to that I just wanted to sort of tell Paul that we got some good feedback on many of his comments about electric vehicles a couple of episode, uh, episodes ago we talked about electric vehicles and in a recent pod, uh, webinar you and I also talked about electric vehicles um, and one of the comments I've been getting from people is that they're looking forward to the efficiencies that electric vehicles, Will bring. We won't have to go and change <laughs> exhaust pipes or uh, all sorts of things that we have in the past. Uh, but also, we won't have to go and fill up every couple of days and spend ten minutes or so filling up and paying. We'll just do it when we drive into our factories or our our um, our, uh, our homes. So yeah, the feedback that we're getting is that I really appreciated the insights that you had on that electric vehicles. So congratulations. I see hydrogen's are raised and said again as an alternative. What's going on in that space?
2: Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, that's great to hear, James. And and it is fascinating because, uh you know, while people often talk about the technological innovation that's happening in some of these sectors, uh probably one of the things that fascinates me most is the uh, the business model innovation. So, um, it's not yet uh, uh, settled where people will charge their electric vehicles. Um. Um, But obviously, you know, there are a lot more opportunities. Uh, It doesn't have to be as centralised as as petrol and diesel uh, refuelling has been through service stations, unless you're a fleet operator and you've had a big tank and refuelling on site. Um, But whether that'll be at home, whether it'll be at the factory, whether it'll still be at service stations, um, I think there's a lot of people that are going to be... Uh, trying to dictate what consumer behaviour will do in the past and actually shape that model. And I think that's going to be quite exciting to see. But certainly uh, it will be uh, in... People won't have to uh, go out of their way uh, to actually uh, uh, charge up. Um, but there will, be a, there will be a struggle in the market for dominance, I think, around uh, what will be the, uh, the the pattern of consumer behaviour around electric vehicles. Um, hydrogen's a really interesting one. Um, it's... Uh, uh, renewable hydrogen uh, will probably be similar in many ways to uh, to the uh, to the existing refuelling, um, and it'll be in the heavier transport. But again, uh, still lots to be looked at in terms of uh, how those costs are going to come down and and how those business models are going to roll out.
1: I think that's. Um, I really like the fact that you you raised this issue of. It's unclear as to how it's going to unfold, and it's going to be driven by market forces because I wanted to find out from from you guys about COP26 that Tenet referred to a minute ago. Uh, on the 1st of November, a couple of weeks from now, we will uh, be saturated in the, in the media of the United Nations Conference of Climate Change in Glasgow, also known as COP26, uh, and there's some people that are saying that this is the most important UN climate change meeting of you know of its history because we need to make all the commitments now and really get going. Whereas other people are commenting that perhaps not much will happen. Um, I'd like to explore this with you guys, but in particular relate it back to how it affects us as business people here in Australia. And to, to put that into context, and 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 Paul, if I can, I might just ask you to explain what the conference the UN conferences are about. But to put into context before we start, I think this is an issue we need to talk about because we are an island at the southern end of the world. We're a long way from from everywhere else. And we are absolutely, completely dependent on the international markets. You know, I was thinking about how to to sort of put into context then for many years, for over 150 years, maybe more, Australia was uh, survived on the the sheep's back we, we rode the sheep's back the merino industry was world-class and we exported all around the world we made millions and millions of dollars and if you travel through Australia you always come across it's very easy to come across remnants of the sheep trade uh, this wasn't just the people that raised the sheep it was who 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 shared them who classed them who moved them the, the the boats going up and down rivers carrying carrying the the fleece but here's the interesting thing, guys. In 19, in 1889, uh, the, the, the Australian fleece reached its peak in 1889. And from then until 1960, for the next 70 years, it, it consistently dropped every year. People fought against it, tried all sorts of things, tried different marketings to try and make uh, merino wool, the flavour of the month again, but the world had moved on. It had moved away from woolen suits and from, from woolen sheets and from woolen everything and started using a different product. And so no matter what we did... We couldn't keep selling this fleece because the world had moved on, and I think that this is what this is relevant to us here in Australia when we think about uh, net carbon zero. It's not a big issue here in Australia, but it is an issue for us in business because we have to sell our products overseas, and so we have to understand what's happening overseas. One more point that might be of interest. Uh, On that 70-year decline, there was two years of great peak where it just shot up and everyone thought the wool is back. Fantastic. And we sold a lot of wool. But it was just a little final spurt. Those two years were, eight well, three years really, 1916 to 1918. Uh, And the reason it shot up, of course, was because there was a world war on and we needed woolen greatcoats and woolen uniforms. As soon as that was over, it plummeted again. So we will hear people talk to us about it doesn't affect us here in Australia. My position is I think it does. So let's talk about – any comment on that before we get back to the COP? No?
0: Well, uh, one of the the lessons there is that uh, these transitions – they can be inevitable. Uh, they can be uh, very disruptive, but also we did find other things to make uh, an export uh, living on uh, in in Australia, despite the decline of uh, of the wool trade. And secondly, that was a that was a mega trend. It was a slow trend, and uh, we uh, we may see a slow trend away from some of our current critical exports uh, in thermal coal uh, natural gas metallurgical coal but the uh, the physics of climate change suggests that it it needs to be a bit faster than a very slow transition and uh, the the where the, the collision of the sort of um, the, the slow natural, or the, the slow processes of um, uh, trade and uh, investment and industry working through one capital stock and into another uh, collides with the urgency of of physics, uh, who knows how fast or slow that transition is going to be. We, we, we're probably going to need to be ready for anything.
1: Yeah, I don't think there's the exact mirror, but it's certainly just, you know, um, a salient point to think of: yeah. we can't, we don't decide what happens here. The, our markets decide, and we have to be tuned into them. And the the common knowledge seems to be that uh, it's government policy, social uh, influences, and you know, what what the community wants that drive these sort of changes. And in particular, those two issues, policy and social, are going to drive the climate change agenda, which brings us to. Uh, Cop. Let's talk about how it affects business. We've got a marker there about how it affects business, but let's talk about the, the process itself. Paul, how did COP come about? Uh, I think it's called the Conference of Parties, is it? That right?
2: uh, that, that's that's correct, James. Um, and it started in at the Rio Earth Summit, really, um, in nineteen ninety two. Most most of the world's countries came together to uh, to sign off on the United Nations Framework um, on Climate uh, Convention on Climate Change. Um, And the first COP, which is the Conference of Parties, is an annual event. Um, I should say it's been an annual event until last year. So COP26 uh, was supposed to be held in 2020, but for obvious reasons around the pandemic uh, was postponed. Um, And the first one uh, started, I think, in 1995. Um, Some, uh, it, it does rotate around the world. Uh, to various regions, um, I understand that uh, Egypt has put up their hand to, uh, to to take on the next one, but they're uh, uh, because it's uh, uh, Africa's turn. Um, so that will be decided, I understand, at COP twenty six, and then announced who will be doing COP twenty um, seven. Some of those uh, cities have become quite uh, well known um, because of hosting the Conference of Parties, because there's various. Uh, uh, stages, I guess, that that's been through over the the uh, the cycle of over a quarter of a decade now. Uh, people will remember Kyoto, which was COP three. Uh, the Kyoto Protocol has been a very uh, important part of the climate change international uh, agreements. Um, people will remember Paris, which was COP twenty um, one. So I guess uh, you know a question I'll have for Tenant will, will be will COP26 Glasgow, will Glasgow be seen in the same way perhaps as Paris or Kyoto or as some of the others that have perhaps just moved things along but haven't actually shifted anything in any sort of major way?
0: So there are landmark cops and there are uh, working cops. There, There are cops that are just, you know, getting the ball a bit further down the field and there are cops that are set up to be the moment when a goal is kicked uh i'm the wrong person to be making sporting metaphors but i think that's how sport works uh, and so uh, paris five years ago well six years ago uh, was a landmark it was the culmination of efforts uh, to get a follow-on agreement to the kyoto protocol kyoto only involved uh, a handful of advanced economies making firm commitments, uh, and it uh, it didn't work as a model uh, of you know firm rules, negotiated commitments. Um, penalties for failing to meet your goals, it didn't work because it didn't attract enough participation. The United States never agreed uh, or never never ratified it. Uh, and uh, one of the countries who did, Canada, uh, once they realized that they were not going to meet the target that they had uh, undertaken, in part because they had done very little to actually try to meet that target, rather than bear the penalties, they exited uh, without penalty. So that was that, that needed a follow-on and efforts from in the lead-up to the Copenhagen COP, which was meant to be a milestone and was nearly a tombstone, uh, were at getting a, a, an agreement that everyone could sign on to. That succeeded at Paris the Paris Agreement does involve commitments from everybody, certainly everybody who has a, a significant share of emissions. And what Glasgow is, the rule—the meetings after Paris were about fleshing out the rulebook, the second layer of detail under the Paris Agreement. What Glasgow is about is finalising a couple of the outstanding rules, but mostly about bootstrapping global ambition, getting everybody to raise the commitments uh, for emissions reduction in the long term and the medium term, for finance uh, to developing countries, for mitigation and adaptation, uh, for collaboration amongst uh, nations and with uh, business and industry and other constituencies, because everybody knew the initial set of commitments made at Paris were not going to be adequate to achieve the goals that we agreed of restraining climate change to well below two degrees and, and you know, with consideration of 1.5 degrees. Uh, the, the the first wave of commitments from everybody fell short of what would be needed to achieve that. Paris sets up a, uh, a bootstrapping process of everybody coming back Raising their ambition, looking at how they've gone, how others have gone, giving their latest best efforts, until we go through iteration from insufficiency to enough. And Glasgow is uh, a, a major milestone in that process.
1: It sounds like you know when you when you hear that, that that story and you read the newspaper and whatever, it sounds like these things are just a bunch of countries getting together and making decisions, making commitments, but nothing really happens. We just continue on as always. But that's not true, is it? Because the world actually is moving to adopting net zero laws, regulations in individual countries. There are specific outcomes, isn't there?
0: There absolutely are. Uh, The the system is is complicated and uh, there's an enormous amount of... Uh, talking and negotiating and devising of uh, non-papers uh, on on many issues, it can be easy to get sort of get lost in the weeds of it and feel like uh, it's it's all trees no forest. But it does have effects, and so among the things that are that are really important in the this this Paris process. Uh, is that it gives us the framework in which every country can make commitments, and it gives us a framework for measuring how we're going and whether we're living up to our commitments and for uh, eliciting further ambition. So, uh, it, you know, th- there's a lot more. There's uh, the, the way that the technology cooperation mechanisms work, uh, the way that uh, finance uh, for developing countries Works uh, up for for discussion uh, at COP26 are some pretty important rules around uh, what's called Article Six, which is international collaboration on emissions reduction, which could be, uh, for instance, uh, linkages between the emissions trading schemes in uh, in Europe and other countries. Or it could be the formation of a new global offsetting scheme that businesses in Australia could use potentially uh, to purchase offsets to help reduce their emissions. Or indeed, that they could sell offsets through, depending on how uh, that, that, uh, that negotiation goes. So it does have impacts uh, but uh, it's a it's a very effort intensive process to get stuff agreed among more than 190 countries, uh, who have very different circumstances, very different um, uh, economic situations, uh, and are looking for uh, each you know their own priorities to be advanced through those negotiations. The thing that makes it even harder is. Uh, Rules for decision-making have never been able to be adopted uh, in this process, so the rule that remains is consensus. You need to get consensus among those 190-plus parties. Uh, and what does consensus mean? Usually it means everybody has to agree. Once or twice uh, it's meant the uh, the chair of the COP uh, pretending not to see one party objecting in the room at the last minute <laughs> and gaveling a decision through uh, with selective blindness, but that that's pretty controversial. Generally, it really does mean consensus. And I've been to, to three cops now. They've all run late uh, from their scheduled conclusion, and the reasons each time were that one or two parties were holding up you know the the rest of the world because they were insisting that one point or another that they needed addressed be fixed before the end of it and sometimes they got their way and sometimes they didn't
1: yeah i think this is generally what everyone expects that there's just a whole lot of talking a whole lot of disagreement you can't get 190 people 190 countries into to one general direction Uh, um, but that Article Six that you mentioned, where they're talking about putting specific numbers, specific frameworks in place in order to change the way the world adopts this, uh, it seems to be one of the key outcomes of Glasgow. Is that is that right? Have I got that? Have I, have I got that right?
0: Well, it's it's certainly one that Australia and Australian industry have followed very closely over the years uh, because uh, we. Uh, We used to think of Australia as a country that was particularly emissions-intensive in the structure of our economy and that we would need to have access to offsets from overseas. Now, I think many people are revising their view of the Australian economy now. We do have a lot of opportunities for emissions reduction. And some of the the sources of our emissions, going to what you were saying earlier, James – Uh, around uh, some of our fossil exports, well, their fate is going to be decided overseas and uh, there might be more emissions reductions there faster than we're actually ready for. Uh, But we do also have great potential as a place to do carbon sequestration, whether in the soil, in forests uh, or deep underground. Uh, And so getting rules for the exchange of uh, emissions reductions and uh, emissions rights between countries is is very important. However, uh, Article Six has been very very challenging to get the rules nailed down. For there are deep disagreements between uh, some major parties uh, in the the world negotiations. And uh, like I was there at in 2018 at Katowice in Poland, where uh, they were trying to negotiate the the whole Paris rulebook. This bit they couldn't get over the line. They agreed the rest. This bit was held over. I was there in Madrid in 2019, where they went. I think it was 36 hours into extra time. I had about one hour's sleep uh, in in the the closing uh, uh, couple of days of that conference trying to get Article 6 agreed, and they couldn't do it. Uh, and it is possible that it will not be agreed this time either. Now, if that's the case, uh, it's that's, that'll be disappointing. It won't be the end of the world because, uh, the, one, there is a basis, actually, for international cooperation just using the already agreed principles of Article 6 that are in the Paris Agreement. Uh, it would be nice to have the next layer of detailed rules. It would certainly be necessary to have that for this new global offsetting scheme to get up. But country-to-country cooperation can happen anyway. Uh, The other reason is, of course, that when we're talking about net zero emissions, uh, yes, trade in abatement, uh, trade in sequestration can can help to cut the costs of that. But there's not going to be anybody in a net zero world who is still running their economy the same way they do today, emitting the same level they do today, and just relying entirely on offsets imported from overseas. And so the, the task of doing like quite a lot of domestic reduction of emissions That remains everywhere, with or without Article
1: Six. Your comment about it's going to be different no matter what. (laughs) The life is changing as we head towards net zero, and this is just one of the mechanisms in which we try to bring it together. Paul, what uh, you've been following this for many years. What What do you think about when you think about these these conferences? Does it have an impact on business? Does it have an impact on industries? Or is it more just politics?
2: No, oh, no, certainly it does have a huge impact on business. It's not always direct, um, but it, uh, these kind of things. And actually, I think the, the idea of having an annual one, people might say, well, do you know, do you need to have an annual one? You know, you're sort of preparing for the, the next one. But you can even see the pressure on the Australian government to actually announce things. And I think sometimes it's like heading to a meeting um, you feel like you've got to be much more prepared than if you were just kind of, you know, it was open-ended. So nothing like a deadline um, to actually um, uh, keep progress moving, I guess, I think is one of the th- key key things, I think, that happens out of this process. Um, we've obviously seen a number of announcements, um, and I guess the big uh, the big change has been a lot of commitments to net zero over the last year by 2050. Uh, whether that's enough, um, some of those uh, goals will, I, I suspect, be... Uh, be brought forward, uh, but the uh, the US, for example, rejoining the Paris Agreement um, has been a big one. Uh, there's been a lot announced uh, in the lead-up. Um, and regardless of what really happens and whether they get consensus at a conference of parties, um, it, it really sets the pace and the direction of, of movement towards addressing climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, I'd love to hear tenants' view on this. So I, I'm quite surprised actually to hear a lot of talk about methane uh, being a quite a big topic at this particular COP, um, because methane is quite a potent greenhouse gas. Um, so maybe, maybe Tennant, you could talk about what might actually be happening in in methane um, or, or being discussed in methane at this at this particular point.
0: So there's a there's a parallel uh, initiative that the United States and Europe just launched. Uh, for uh, a global uh, methane commitment uh, with major economies uh, asked to pledge a 30% reduction in their methane emissions by 2030. And uh, this is uh, leakage of uh, methane from coal mines and natural gas and oil wells and pipelines, but it's also uh, burps from cattle and sheep uh, and and herd animals, uh combined, those things have produced a, a large increase in global methane concentrations um, over the recent decades. And and that is a, a potent greenhouse gas, you're quite right. So uh, along uh, alongside the efforts in the formal negotiating streams uh, at Glasgow, uh, there will be uh, wrangling uh, by the Europeans and the Americans to get... Uh, major you know, countries to to commit to that that pledge, and there'll probably be some more announcements at COP. Uh, and uh, Australia hasn't expressed a view on that yet. That, as far as I've seen, we are one of the world's largest exporters of natural gas and of meat, uh, and we'd be uh, a pretty good fit for joining that commitment. Uh, meat and livestock, Australia. Uh, targeting net zero emissions, uh, by 2030. Uh, and, uh, there's a, a commitment, uh, to net zero by, uh, our oil and gas sector as well. So we should be able to tie a, a ribbon around that and, uh, uh, make a, a commitment to the, uh, the actual emissions reduction levels. Uh, so we'll, we'll see, um, it's, uh, it, it is true that these um, events are tended to elicit, you know, they, they provide a deadline to make uh, a splash, make a commitment, bring something to the table. And the question for Australia is, uh, are we going to be seen to have brought something uh, impressive to the table that we can deliver on? Or are we going to be seen to have turned up with, I don't know, a box of roses and a $10 Coles voucher?
1: I think it's an issue because uh, if I remember correctly, last time I checked it, Australia had become the largest exporter of of natural gas, of LNG. So Australia was the largest exporting market in the world. The second largest was Western Australia (laughs) and the third largest was Amman in Africa. So this is not something that we can just ignore, is it?
0: No, well, we're um, we have a a lot at stake in this. Uh, what happens to demand for natural gas will have a big impact on the Australian economy. And as as we're talking, prices uh, for spot prices for natural gas in Europe and in uh, North Asia are at extraordinary levels. Uh, there is uh, there is a squeeze in in that market. Uh, is that going to uh, provoke um, a redoubling of efforts to uh, change the course of the energy systems in those countries uh, and cut their reliance on gas? Is it going to provoke a supply response and uh, a, a rush to more investment? I think uh, fears of the former are probably going to uh, cruel efforts to boost supply with longer term investments. So we could be looking at uh, high prices, but declining demand uh, for that commodity. And as I think we we might have talked about last time, Japan uh, has uh, enshrined in their, the latest version of their national energy policy, a, uh, a goal of halving their reliance on liquefied natural gas for power generation this decade. Uh, so with all that you know, in the mix, yes, uh, the the movements from our uh, customer uh, economies uh, and the uh, the pledges that are that are sought on methane and uh, on on greenhouse gases as a whole are very significant to uh, to Australia's economy and to our policy.
1: I think we've um, presented a very strong argument that what happens at these things affects our business. It's not just the exporters like natural gas, but all the other businesses involved in Australia are going to be affected by our markets overseas heading towards uh, net zero. And these things are decided at places like COP. Before I ask you individually what you think of some things that a business person should frame their thinking about when they're hearing about COP and about uh, climate change, uh, I'd love to know, Tennant, what it's like. What happens at these things? So Can you just give a personal experience? Oh,
0: absolutely. Look, I, I've uh, been to uh, the two I mentioned uh, at Cadaqués and Madrid, but also to the the Paris COP, and they're they're amazing. Like if you really immerse yourselves uh, yourself in them, there's so much going on. You have the formal negotiations where there's multiple streams, multiple issues, all these parties. It's uh, it's a It's a weird combination of fascinatingly tense and extraordinarily boring as, you know, you you have this ritual theatre of uh, countries making interventions, making their statements, uh, responding to requests from the chair's uh, to uh, to contain their statements just to new issues and areas of movement by then reciting their historical positions for half an hour in a one hour session where uh, uh, fifty other countries are meant to be talking afterwards, uh, but then alongside those formal negotiations, you've got this immense gathering of, of knowledge and passion and talent from around the world, uh, people from business, from environment NGOs, farmers, trade unions, uh, political activists of all stripes, technologists and scientists, uh, and they're sharing their knowledge. It's like trying to drink from a fire hose, uh, getting across all the, the information and the perspectives that are available there. I think I sent uh, 2,000 tweets from each of the last couple of cops of just the, the, the notes of all the side events that I was lucky enough to see. You could walk into uh, a, uh, a room at the, the Chinese Pavilion and see like four Nobel laureates uh, and, and people that you would never get uh, access to otherwise talking about, what's going on in uh, Chinese economic policymaking around climate and what's going on at the highest levels of American or European policymaking. So uh, I think they're amazing. I'm, uh, I'm going to participate in the online side of COP26 as much as I can, but it's uh, it's sadly just not practical to, uh, to get there in person this time.
1: What will happen in the Turkish pavilion?
0: Well, uh, there's going to be a lot of interest from uh, from Turkey uh, in EU's CBAM because they are uh, one of the, the biggest exporters to Europe of steel and cement and aluminium. Uh, and uh, they have a lot at stake in how that system pans out. Turkey uh, has had um, some... Uh, some criticism and some controversies in relation to uh, climate change and, and the COP. At uh, Katowice in 2018, they were responsible for about half of the, uh, I think it was a 16-hour delay in uh, finalising that conference because they were demanding to be deleted from the list of developed countries uh, that uh, is a, a part of the Kyoto Protocol uh, so that they uh, could be uh, a, a place that issues carbon credits uh, rather than having to meet targets. They didn't get that, uh, that demand met, uh, but um, I think they are very conscious of the pressure that can be brought to bear economically uh, and and through the internal policies of major economies as much as through the negotiations on countries that are not seen to be doing what's expected of them on climate change. And they're not the only country in that position. so uh, there'll be there'll be a lot to talk about in the Turkish pavilion I'm sure and I, I look forward to uh, my panel session.
1: This is fascinating. So there's theatre and there's drama and there's, you know, senior international political heads all bumping heads. But also alongside that, there is some intense, highly detailed work going on that is moving the world forward. Is is that what you're hearing, Paul? Is that the way you understand it works, Tennant?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think that sounds like Parliament anyway, really. Um, you know, lots of theatre and lots of statements, but actually a lot of reasonably boring, mundane progress that's happening around reform and changes to legislation and bills. Um, so it happens whenever, uh, whenever you get a group of people together, and particularly then when you also have a media angle to it, uh, you, you tend to get some of the theatre as well. Um, but this is, these, are, these are points in time that actually bring together and actually provide pressure and influence on a whole range of things. And, uh, and you know, as you started talking about, James, we're a, uh, you know, we're, a, we're, we're quite a, a remote economy. Um, we're, what is it, about 0.3% of the world population. We've got a, a, a lot of uh, what happens outside of Australia really in, informs us, um, it, it influences us. Um, And it can be customers, it can be investors, it can be rulemaking uh, by countries about what can be exported. Um, And for a lot of Australian businesses, it'll be um, maybe you're in a supply chain, uh, maybe you're working uh, with uh, an international company that's operating in Australia. Um, Maybe uh, part of your componentry goes into exports, or maybe just... Uh, what happens to those export economies and those price international pricing and decisions will actually impact your regional economy um, and the national economy. We can see uh, the changes in things like iron ore pricing and what that does to the Australian budget, uh, the federal budget. and that's effectively our collective budget uh, as taxpayers. So all of these things have a really big uh, big impact um, and uh, and you know I think the fact that it's every year means that you do have that. That discipline of ongoing progress, uh, with a little bit of show and tell, a little bit of theatre, um, but uh, but ongoing progress.
1: So let's uh, let's wrap this up and talk about what specifically I should think about as a business person when I'm hearing about all this theatre and not hearing about the details, but know what's going on. If I was a, if I was able to sort of draw a a, 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 a word map. Um, We have policy around the world saying, here's the way our country is going to help the world survive. We are making specific rules, regulations within my country to make this happen. Then financiers say, well, and investors say, well, we don't want to invest in ones that aren't sticking to those rules because then we're going to get caught, which means that businesses start looking at government policy investor policy and start making business strategies based on this changing world. And that eventually feeds down into, you know, <laughs> Paul Hodson's Propriety Limited in in Australia, who's trying to trade with the world. What do we need to think about? What are we listening to? What do we what are we trying to find out of COP as business people? So
0: I'd say that detail and direction are both worth focusing on. So the the, the detail of collaborations uh, between nations on particular uh, technologies or markets, developing green hydrogen supply and demand uh, initiatives on methane and otherwise, those are very important. Those will have a, a direct and immediate impact on some sectors and businesses within those sectors. But also we know that those details are going to keep evolving the the commitments that come forward this year are also not going to be enough to avoid uh, 1.5 or more than 1.5 degrees of global warming. And there will be further ratcheting, further efforts to elicit uh, stronger commitments even than those this year uh, for the, the next round of commitments due in the next couple of years. So the direction is important to keep in mind. Uh, that uh, is your business is your business model are your investments robust to a world that is going to continue iterating towards uh, deeper more aggressive targets on responding to climate change that's you know you, you you do need to make sure that you're you're viable for the rules as they stand today and the commitments that are coming next down the pipe but uh, if you think you're you're okay in a world that's you know in um, in first gear uh, on responding to climate change, are you are you okay when they get into top gear? Is the question.
1: You have a way with words, uh, Tennant. I love it, um, Paul. Um, what are you thinking? Yeah, how, how do what do we think about as business people?
2: Look, I, I agree one hundred percent with with tenant there. You know, it's it's really it's really about you know what's directly said, and then it's about the direction, and I guess the pace, and uh, um, and we and and also to watch and I guess see. I mean, Australian government hasn't, I don't think, completely made clear its position uh, leading into COP twenty six yet. Maybe there's some other things that could happen out of that, um, and so all these things will will shape. Uh, things for for years to come um, and you know I mean I think it was just this week uh, the Chinese announced that they won't be investing in coal projects outside of yeah. um, outside of China um, these these are you know so in in I guess in isolation these small these decisions look quite small but when you actually add them up, Um, And that's what I guess the COP does. It actually adds up all the things that have happened and then what are the commitments going forward. Uh, The pace of change is actually really quite rapid um, and they do have huge flow-on effects. Um, So, you know, a lot of these big projects in Australia don't get going without international investment, for example. Um, And um, even as consumers, you may go, well, actually, I'd still like to buy something, but in a few years' time, you may not be able to buy it or it may be so expensive because there's not really a market for it anymore so all these kind of things shape uh, the way things are going I'd like to ask um, a, a tenant a question about 1.5 degrees because I know the IPCC report earlier this year actually said Australia was already Australia's landmass was already at 1.4 degrees higher um, mm. is 1.5 still realistic I mean is that no. a question you want to answer or is uh, you know I've I've actually even seen reports now that have said, "Well, actually, if we keep it to under three degrees, maybe <laughs> we've got a change, right?" So, so you know, are we still aiming for one point five, or is it now two, or what, what's that situation? Because one point four in Australia already, uh, with a net zero commitment, maybe of maybe by twenty fifty, yeah, doesn't sound like there's much wiggle room between one point four and one point five.
0: So this is complicated. Technically, uh, we never did agree in a, a, a completely firm way to 1.5 degrees. What's in the Paris Agreement is that uh, all the signatories commit to holding global temperature increases to well below 2 degrees with consideration of 1.5 degrees. There was a, a push for 1.5 at Paris and the result was compromised text The other thing that people knew going into Paris was that all the commitments that were on the table going into Paris in 2015 were not going to be enough to actually achieve those temperature goals. So uh, the Paris Agreement embodies this bootstrapping process of coming back every few years to update your ambition, to extend your ambition, to make sure that it's always the highest ambition that you can bring at that moment. And so, bit by bit, lift countries up from inadequate commitments to adequate ones. Now, that that process is a lot more halting and awkward than just taking the global temperature goal, saying how many tonnes of remaining emissions that amounts to and portioning out that budget bit by bit to every country. But a process like that was tried in the Kyoto Protocol, and it didn't work. Not enough countries signed up for that level of rigour. And the somewhat more amorphous, fluffy process of the Paris Agreement actually potentially has greater resilience and ability to adapt and change over time. And bring this greater level of ambition. All that said, we are going to see some significant climate change. So uh, land areas, uh, you know, these these global goals represent uh, a global average and land areas will be at the warmer end of any average. So, yes, Australia has already warmed considerably. Uh, We are going to warm more no matter how successful we are at achieving the goals of the Paris Agreement. But two degrees is better than three degrees. One and a half degrees is better than two degrees. Every fraction of the degree of warming that we can avoid matters. And so uh, while we uh, must recognise that we've gone a long way down the path of warming, it's never too late to pull ourselves back from the, as far down that path uh, as we could still go. And uh, there is some decent reason to hope that the Paris process is working to elicit higher ambition. As we have seen in the past year with uh, nearly all the major economies making substantially improved commitments for the medium term, Uh, we will see what Australia commits to next month.
1: Yes, look, what that says to me is that this is an important Topic. It's an important uh, meeting and it's going to mean a lot for us as individuals and as uh, businesses over the time ahead. Hey, guys, I thought that was a great conversation. Thank you so much. The purpose of these podcasts is to find a big topic that's happening around the world and ask what on earth does this mean for us as business people? I think we nailed it today. It was great. I'm looking forward to COP now um so let's finish here hey guys enjoy cop 26 and we'll talk next month on another big topic for anyone listening to this if you've enjoyed the conversation of what on earth please head over to our linkedin page minerals energy and supply chain resilience and drop us a line and tell us what you like also what you didn't like um we'll talk to you soon catch you next time